Welcome to Stonewall Spotlight, a monthly podcast by the Stonewall Democratic Club, focusing on the most salient issues in democratic politics from the LGBTQIA and feminist lenses. I'm Mackenzie Hussman, and I'm here with my co-host, Marcus Levengood. Thank you, Mackenzie. And in this special season in review episode, we showcase some of our most important interviews in addition to updates from some of our members, our summer barbecue, SB10, and our work on the ground at City Hall. But first, let's listen to our freshman interview from Stonewall's endorsed candidate for insurance commissioner, Senator Ricardo Lara. Senator Lara, thank you so much for coming onto the show. We're so happy to have you. Hola, it's good to be here. I am such a very large fan of yours and the advocacy that you bring to the California State Senate, not only as an LGBT person of color, but also someone that is fighting for immigration. So thank you so much for coming on to the show and being on our first episode. So let's get right into it. What role do grassroots LGBTQ political organizations like the Stonewall Democratic Club have in leading the Democratic Party in California in a more progressive and inclusive direction? Well, you know, Stonewall has been essential to the fabric of our democratic policies and the involvement of clubs like the Stonewall Democratic Club, who not only are fabulous, but also play a pivotal role in ensuring that we have, uh, you know, progressive democratic policies on our platform, whether it's at the state level or at the national level, and providing a space for our LGBTQ community to partake in our democratic process is essential. And one key way of getting and making sure that happens is through our Stonewall Democratic Club. So it's, uh, it's at the very fabric of our democratic ideals and values as Democrats. And so it's it's great. And it's always inspiring to see young people coming and taking charge and ownership of the club and uh, taking, you know, the club to new, you know, heights like this podcast, which is, I'm really excited to be on a podcast. Uh, so this is great. This is, uh, you know, how we open up our our democracy to, to listeners and in new formats. And it's great. I mean, even right now, it's such an important and exciting time for young people to get involved, right? Absolutely. I mean, what you've, you've seen is you're seeing a cultural shift and a generational, generational shift in our Democratic Party and where, you know, those of us that have been fighting the good fight uh, now need to learn our lessons from the next generation and what they want to see in their, their political leaders, what they want to see in their communities. And to me, that's inspiring because... You know, we just, it can't be the same uh, strategies that we've used even in, during, you know, as Gen Xers, right? So we need to modernize, we need to continue to grow our party, and we need to continue to be more inclusive. And Stonewall is exactly what we need and is a proof of us, you know, not only inviting younger people to be part of the discussion, but also democratizing our policy so that everyone feels welcome and engaged. Well, wonderful. I'm just really excited about uh, this podcast. I'm hoping that we can reach a lot more young people and get more young people involved. So let's jump right into immigration. So hot topic right now. So in the California legislature, you've been one of the foremost advocates for immigrant students. Please tell us briefly about your advocacy at the state level 
to provide opportunities for education, employment, and the path to legalization for young immigrants. Well, you know, immigration has been an issue that I've been working on since I was a staffer uh, when, when I started working with Assemblyman Marco Fireball. And the irony was when I got elected to the assembly, it was an issue that I didn't really want to focus on because, you know, people tend to put you in boxes when you get to Sacramento. Like, oh, he's a gay, progressive, Latino member. I bit the bullet and I dove in and became unapologetic about being a true immigration champion in Sacramento. And it's really what wakes me up in the morning and say I have the best job in the world. To be able to fight for uh, such vulnerable communities uh, whether it's you know our immigrants, LGBTQ community, our working families, and this opportunity that I'm given in such a short span, I need to do the most to be able to ensure that our immigrants are fully integrated into our society, that they feel, especially now more than ever, that they're part of our the fabric of our culture like they've always been. And then when you stop and reflect the fact that this country is really made up of not only immigrants, but people who, in somebody in your lineage, somebody in your family, whether it was last night or generations ago, decided to come to this country and to fight for a better life. And so this kind of rebel attitude is ingrained in our DNA as Americans. And this is why I think it makes us such an exceptional country. And despite the fact that, you know, we have a president who is completely anti-immigrant, misogynistic and racist and homophobic and the list goes on and on and on, one election really does not determine who we are as Americans as we're proving that here in California and with tremendous victories that we've had across the country in state houses where we've elected, you know, our transgender candidates where people of color continue to get elected in the South. And so we're seeing these like little victories that are going to, you know, when we couple them together, makes uh, it really de- demonstrates how even in these dark times we continue to win. And that should serve as inspiration, not only for our immigrant communities, but for our LGBTQ communities to continue to fight, to continue to take that step and run for office, become that campaign manager, get involved in public service at one, w- at one form or another. And, you know, these are all victories that we can claim as our own and as we continue to fight the current injustices that are happening in our country. And you're a prime example for that, not only just for immigration, but for LGBT people, for LGBT people of color. You know, you're just a prime example. And I think that the community really thanks you for leading a charge in all those various different areas. You know, it's, it's uh, although I'm very humbled by the support I've gotten and, and people thank me, I really see it as an obligation. And, you know, as somebody that has grown up without health care, has grown up in a very low-income community with two immigrant parents who were undocumented. It's really uh, an obligation that I have. And it was something that, you know, my mom instilled in us at a very young age. And, you know, as children, she's like, I didn't come to this country so that my children could be mediocre. You have to do something to give back. And so this is a sense of service, a sense of obligation that I have to give back to the state who has given my family absolutely everything. And to be at this position now to ensure that other folks not only see themselves in the work that we're doing, but, you know, identity politics matters. Seeing a gay Latino who's unapologetic about where they come from, who they are, from the east side of town is important. And I'll tell you time and time again, I, when I speak in classrooms or I go talk to, to different kids in schools, there's always that 
two, three Latino kids who are outside waiting for me to say that, you know, they're queer and they never thought they could run for office and now they want to be engaged in politics. To me, that's absolutely what it's all about. And to be able to inspire folks to be part of such a dynamic democratic system that we have here is what I want. I want young people to get involved. I want people to love being in public service. And I don't want them to feel shame because they feel they, they, they want to run for office or they want to be politicians. They want to be public servants. That's something that we should celebrate and not shy away from and somehow feel like you should be embarrassed about it. You know, nobody's embarrassed about wanting to be a doctor or a lawyer or so forth. If you want to be a public servant and a politician, you should be affirmative about that and learn the trade. Learn the, it, it's called political science for a reason. There's a science to this. There's a study for this. And we shouldn't shy away from that. And I want to encourage more people to do, to take that step and partake in public service because there's nothing more rewarding, in my opinion, than giving back to the community, giving back to your state and to your country. You are exactly right. And um, thank you so much for that. You mentioned President Trump earlier uh, is working to rescind DACA and ICE agents are aggressively pursuing deportation proceedings against law-abiding Californians. What can we do to protect Californians under the threat of deportation? I have to say that, you know, for some of our, our younger listeners may not know that we've been here before. In the 90s, what the hatred that you're seeing at the national level existed here in California. Not too long ago, we passed Proposition 187 under Governor Pete Wilson that literally limited and took away resources for our immigrant communities. And if at the time, if you even just Google these Prop 187 um, commercials, you would see such hateful rhetoric coming from even Democrats that are still in office talking about and who have now ironically reversed their position but they would, you would see the border and these droves of people just crossing and running across and saying that we were coming to take services and to mooch off the system. And that was the first time in my life that I, you know, I was totally ignorant about the fact that, you know, I was growing up in East L.A. I thought we were all the same. I was watching Saved by the Bell. I thought I was super white with my cardigan and my polos, living my best life. And then all of a sudden this is on TV and we're singled out. And at that point in time, you realize, what are you going to do? Are you going to allow this to happen? Or are you going to actually demonstrate that our communities don't like that? And that was a direct attack on my, my parents. And seeing them such hard workers and seeing them very vulnerable and scared really frightened me because that was the first time I actually saw my parents genuinely scared for their safety. Um, and then came, you know, Prop 209, the anti-affirmative action proposition. Then came 227, which was the English-only laws, which I'm so blessed that last year I was able to repeal that uh, with Proposition 58. Uh, and really, it was the birth of my political career, of being unapologetic of who I was and also fighting for my parents, who have done everything and have always done everything to fight for their children. So it was a way to you know, demonstrate that we weren't going to just let this happen. And so now we're here again, and we're here at a federal level, uh, at, a, at a national level, where this discourse continues. But I can tell you, you know, I wish that the state legislatures 
actually would it would have more of the immigration policy under our jurisdiction. But what California has done under the leadership of so many folks that have come before me is provide the resources and the protections at the state level so that people can access financial aid. People can access loans to be able to go to work uh, or to finish our school, I should say. One thing we did last year, which is phenomenal under my bill, was for the first time ever, we become the first state to allow immigrants to take out professional licenses so that, and these are 40 different professional licenses that you can come, you can take out from the state, from a beautician to an architect. And if you pass the exams and you no longer need a social security to, to actually sign up for the exam, you pass the exam, you can work as an independent contractor or open up your own business fully legally and work as a profession, as a professional. That is not happening anywhere but it's happening here in California. And so for our immigrant community that is still undocumented, um, and the beauty that's happened now is that we all know a dreamer. We all know a DACA recipient. We all know an immigrant family and really have worked hard to come out of the shadows. And it's very similar to our LGBTQ community. If you remember, we kept on saying we need to come out. They need to see us in a light of, you know, just we're normal people. We go to work. We have a family. You know, we enjoy the weekends. We do, we're normal people. And, you know, for so many years, the immigration discussion was only um, held within the Latino or immigrant communities. So we didn't evolve from that. And you saw the LGBTQ community continue to make tremendous strides because we were not, we were incorporating allies into our movement. And I think finally we've been able to do this at a national level and credit is, should be completely given to the dreamers who have said, this is who we are. We want you to be part of this. You can also have a place and role as an advocate, as a, you know, somebody who's a U.S. citizen to advocate and to see celebrities now wearing shirts that say we're all dreamers. That might to some people seem that it's not, that's insignificant, but it's very significant because now you're, now people feel part of this movement and you feel supported. You feel that you have a place now and it's gone. The conversation has gone beyond just the traditional groups, which is something that we've been trying to do forever in the immigrant rights community, which our LGBTQ brothers and sisters have done so successfully. And this is why you've seen our, our, our queer community really um, integrated into mainstream culture now. And I think we're going to, we're getting there with our immigrant community. And lastly, on this t- issue, I would say, you know, Growing up uh, as a child in the 90s, my parents had, um, you know, they never wanted to live in fear because that was, you know, the raids were happening, you know, people were getting stopped and pulled over and then deported. And this was a real, essentially what's happening now. What we don't want is people to live in fear. We want people to be careful. We want people to, you know, be uh, proactive when it comes to not only protecting themselves and their families, but not allowing people to live in fear, not, you know, making sure people are still going to school or accessing health care. It's so vital. Nothing's more important than your health. You know, we've seen already people uh, withholding care for themselves, especially we, we've heard a woman almost died in L.A. County because she wanted to have her baby at her home because she was scared that she was undocumented. She was going to be deported from the hospital. Nothing is more important than your life. Nothing. And being able to access services that we fought in the legislature to provide to immigrant communities is exactly what, why we're doing this. So, you know, I would just tell our community and, and those of us that have friends and family who are undocumented, be careful. 
let's, you know, not live in fear, but protect yourself, uh, understand your rights, and also not, don't let fear, uh, you know, rule the day. And the irony is that these are so many parallels to our LGBTQ community, right? Mm-hmm. And the other... And, interesting thing is a lot of the leaders of the dreamer movement are actually queer undocumented students and student leaders and that's done precisely because these uh, um, our attorneys were saying that as queer latino immigrants they can actually apply for asylum and that is one legal strategy and why uh, you see so many queer people uh, joining this fight in for for our daca and for our dreamers so you know it's it's again, inspiring to see, just like Black Lives Matter was, you know? And so there's no doubt that the Dreamers and Black Lives Matters have really revolutionized how we uh, organize ourselves now politically in this country. Our next topic is a very, very hot topic right now, <laughs> Senator. I'm sure you know all about it. Marijuana, the big yes. 420, right? It's coming close. I mean, <laughs> April, well, not really. But California is now in the recreational marijuana business. Yes, we are. Data from Colorado... I think we've always been, by the way. We've always been. (laughs) We've always been. But just now, we're finally getting our act together. Right. We're going to make some money off of it. What happened in Colorado suggests that we can expect significant increases in traffic accidents, unfortunately, as people drive while they're baked. This may prompt increases in auto insurance premiums, uh, which... And premiums are already too high. How do you propose to insulate consumers from increasingly punishing transportation expenses? Right. Well, you know, again, this we got to look at this issue holistically. And the fact is that um, driving while high is and will continue to be against the law. And so what but we really need to get to the point is, and this is the 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 crux of the issue, it's really difficult to legislate human behavior. Mm-hmm. We can pass bills till we're blue in the face or, you know, and try to uh, modify people's behaviors, and we just can't. And so what the data actually really suggests is what's more dangerous than even DUIs or driving while high is distracted driving. And we've anyway. seen that the numbers have gone significantly up, even though we've passed some of the strictest leg- laws to, you know, prohibit texting while driving. Right, under phone, people on the on, phone, on the phone. All, that, all so, that stuff. So this now falls into that category as well, right? Mm-hmm. Distracted driving continues to be the biggest problem when it comes to our accidents in our very urban areas. And so we have to do a much better job of educating folks, obviously. And as this law continues to evolve is how do we identify resources to continue to help educate folks about just distracted driving? People are literally eating, reading the paper, reading their phones while they're driving. And that is a major problem. And we also see the irony of when the economy is doing well, people are working, Mm -hmm. people and gas prices are low, people drive more. And that just naturally increases, uh, you know, accidents. Right, of course. And More so, people on the road. You know, right, okay. right. Which people is going to be bacon while they're driving. Exactly. So hence why we need to do much better job, and we've done, mm-hmm. and we're working to ensure that we have much more robust public transportation systems, that we actually get um, trains and buses to where actually people live, mm-hmm. and ensuring that we provide other options for folks that maybe choose not to drive or choose to, you know, drink or choose to smoke and not get in the car. The part is like, 
How do we mm. provide people additional options so that they don't get in that vehicle? Right, they can just stay off the road. Exactly. And they can, that, that's, I mean, ride sharing, all that stuff is really kind of, right. I, I'm, has made a huge impact in right. lowering drunk driving right. and DUIs and such. Why not? Right. This would be the same and, thing. and your question to the rates is important because what we've done in California with Prop 103, which really included now major re regulatory reforms under the Department of Insurance for home and auto insurance rates, that the insurance commissioner actually is the one that has the final say on approving the rate increases. So you need a, you need a robust insurance market because you want to make sure people get their payouts mm -hmm. if and when they get an accident. But you also want to make sure that it's affordable for folks. Mm. And this is why a couple years ago, we worked to modernize the low-cost auto insurance plan that we have in the state to allow folks, especially low-income folks, to be able to access this you know, low-income um, option for mm. auto insurance rates. And what we've also done is allowed now our immigrant communities to actually partake in the program. What we need to do is do a much better job of advocating for the program. One of the ideas that we've brought up is why shouldn't you have a brochure about the low-cost auto insurance program when you get your driver's license in the mm -hmm. mail? To give people an opportunity like to right? see. Right, right. <laughs> it should be. Right. I'm just thinking, how do we allow people to understand that there's a min you can get minimum coverage, it's affordable, and that the state's going to help you mm -hmm. with, you know, cover that. And what we've seen, the, the folks that actually uh, use the low-cost auto insurance program is that they use it to build on further from, and as y their year goes by, they actually build up their coverage, right? So it's a good way to start. Mm -hmm. It's not a scary product that's, from some insurance company, it's actually from the state. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, when we talk about insurance, I mean, that's this insurance oversight. This goes into right. the next question, which is great. Um, and oversight is incredibly important when we're talking about price collusion. Does California have enough oversight of insurance companies right now to prevent price collusion? And like, are you satisfied that California has adequate provisions in place to encourage? Uh, robust market competition, you say? Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, again, really fascinating, uh, and I love this question because now we're, we're trying to make insurance sexy for people, right? But insurance is very vital for our <laughs> existence. Mm -hmm. You know, every, I always say everybody hates insurance until you have to use it and until you need it, right? And so the collusion question really gets to the fact that there has been federal laws passed, I think in the 40s, that... Uh, allowed for certain information sharing between insurance companies and without triggering any antitrust laws. Um, but what we've done in California has actually gone much further. And again, through Prop 103, mm -hmm. uh, is again, we, the insurance and the insurance commissioner actually has to approve the rates. And then we have to see if the rates are appropriate for not only the product, for the amount of coverage that they're providing and the amount of liability that, th that we're actually getting as well. Uh, and so we've been able to go further than the federal government. The irony is now, under this new Congress, we've been trying to eliminate the, the protections that we have, the antitrust laws for the insurance companies, and they haven't been successful, thank God. Mm -hmm. But what we've done in California, which, by the way, is the largest insurance market in the country and sixth in the world, is, again, add these additional protections that allow the insurance commissioner to have the final say uh, when it comes to the rates and if the rates are appropriate or not. And this is why I think you need somebody who can 
provide that perfect balance, right? You don't want to mm-hmm. disrupt the insurance market, but you also want to make sure it's healthy enough so that people are getting the the payouts when they need them and as quickly as possible so they can rebuild their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we're working now is ensuring that we stay vigilant. We always have we always know that the insurance industries are always trying to get the upper hand. This is why it's important to have an insurance commissioner that's going to keep an eagle eye. And I have to say. Uh, uh, insurance Commissioner Dave Jones has done a, a great job at this uh, and has really been uh, exceptional at shedding light into this issue mm-hmm. of insurance. Now, as you know, we tried to work on Prop 45 in 2014 to be able to put in healthcare uh, insurance companies within the Department of Insurance, and it failed. We need to revisit that mm-hmm. because we're seeing the huge co- skyrocketing cost of prescription drugs. And we see that in, even in some cases, for example, we're seeing across the country that when an individual is, you know, gets their PrEP medication, that already considers them at a high risk and therefore have to pay higher for insurance rates mm-hmm. under their health care plan, which is ridiculous. Because what you're actually doing is you're actually being very responsible mm-hmm. and you should actually not be penalized for that. You actually should sure. get a savings in and your insurance And it could plan. be discriminatory, too, if you look Completely. at it, right? If, Completely. I mean, and, and talking about drug prices, right, we, we go into, uh, we've watched the cost of life-saving drugs skyrocket inexplicably. I mean, we talk about insulin. We just talked about PrEP. I consider it a life-saving drug Absolutely. like crazy. Um, how would you leverage your post of insurance commissioner? You talked a little bit about it, but more so to push back against big pharma's appetite for these outrageously huge profits that are just plaguing plaguing us right now. You know, I think we've taken some very important steps, and it's taken us a couple of years in the Senate with the passage of SB 17 by Senator Ed Hernandez, which really now forces pharmaceutical companies to justify the cost for their medications. And I think that's a good first step. Again, we need to get to a point where we amend our constitution to bring in uh, healthcare insurance companies into the regulatory scheme of the Department of Insurance, which currently does not exist. So what you're seeing is a free-for-all from our pharmaceutical companies. I just uh, was visiting Canada, looking at their universal healthcare system there, and had specific questions about uh, their drug pricing policies. And very interesting, they actually, the provinces get together, meet with the pharmaceuticals, and actually they, as the provinces, tell them how much they're going to pay mm-hmm. if they want their drug mm. in, the mar- in their market. Can you imagine if we were to be able to do that under a single-payer system mm-hmm. with the purchasing power of 40 million Californians, the largest market, and saying, no, pharma, we, this is where we're going to pay you for this specific drug. Mm-hmm. And we're going to base it on a formulary that we're going to look and use at what, uh, what you're charging other countries. Exactly. And look right? at our power, right? Exactly. I mean, you're not going to say no to us. As opposed to... <laughs> and, right. I don't see pharma leaving... The California market, <laughs> right? The right? biggest market. Right and, but what we can do is make it more fair for the average family. Mm-hmm. Right now, you're seeing that the individual family is pit against a big pharmaceutical company, mm-hmm. and they have to fight to be able to get their not medication. Fair. Not no. only is it not fair, it's inhumane, mm-hmm. and it is... And it should not be happening in the richest country in the world right. and in the most powerful state in the country. The I, biggest irony when I was talking to the health uh, minister in, uh, I think it was Quebec province, and I asked him, give me an example. How much would you charge for PrEP? 
you know, how much would you charge for, how much would you, you know, bill that? And they're like, we can't tell you because through our, you know, formulary, we can't disclose that. But I can tell you that in the U.S., you are paying five times the amount. Mm. And the irony is that those drugs are being manufactured and created in California. Mm -hmm. And yet we're bearing the brunt of the price for the rest of the country and the world for that. Mm -hmm. So we need to get to a point where we regulate, just like we regulate home and auto insurance, we need to bring in healthcare insurance mm-hmm. into the fold so that we not only use uh, the power, purchasing power of 40 million Californians, but that we po- provide it in a, popular, in, a, in a proper regulatory scheme to allow us to not only cut prices, but also understand the efficacy of these new drugs that are coming into mm-hmm. the market. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is turn on the television and there's a new drug for something else oh or goodness. for or for the the same issue that we've been dealing with, right? Diabetes, mm-hmm. high blood pressure, things that continue to, to plague our, our communities. But then there's no way of seeing if they're actually efficacious right. or if they're actually the working. Data. Exactly. And they're charging you over, over the roof, yes, right? And so, like. you know... I'll, I'll tell you what they do in Germany, which is fascinating, when I was visiting. Mm-hmm. So they don't control the cost there of new drugs, right? And it's a hybrid system. They have, they have a single-payer system, and they have uh, in, uh, private insurance. And it works in a healthy balance. You know, it's a, a, a good hybrid model. But for their drug prices, they'll say, you can introduce your drug, but in a whole year, we're going to have a group of scientists that are going to just study the efficaciousness of your drug. And if you're if you're claiming it's it's ten percent more uh, efficient than the, the drug that we're providing right now in the mm-hmm. public system, then you know whatever that regulatory scheme is, we're gonna take that for a year. Mm. And in a, all funded by the government. Yeah, it's funded by the government. Uh. This this panel, and if the panel comes back and says your drug is not as efficacious as you said it was, you have to reimburse the entire state <laughs> for it. So it you imagine the bar right. raises the bar, right? right? <laughs> so one, it puts the pharmaceutical companies on check. Uh-huh. It makes sure that you're just not getting another new drug that is not as efficacious as the one that currently is being provided. And it keeps you honest. So you're not going to introduce something that then in the papers is going to come out as saying this drug does nothing to help right. this high blood pressure per se. And so not only are we going to take it off the market, but you're going to have to reimburse the state for the expenditures of the research. Love it. So, you know, there's different things that we can do, and we can be creative. And insurance actually can be used to not only lower the, the prices, but also create different products to allow us to keep the pharmaceutical companies uh, honest and, and, again, put the power back uh, where it belongs with the people. And a lot of, a lot of people, Senator, don't understand the significance of your expertise on this <laughs> on this <laughs> issue. And the reason why I want to bring this up, because I, I have followed your uh, track record um, and your leadership when it comes to uh, single-payer health care, specifically with the introduction of SB 562. It was, you've led the charge when everybody else is talking about how difficult it is. You say, well, you know what? I've got something on the table, right? And you understand that health care is a right. It's not a privilege, right? And when you introduced it, uh, which if everybody at home, it, it would have established universal health coverage for Californians. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you didn't understand, you know, what the backlash and you know, what would happen to it. But now that you are running for commissioner, insurance commissioner, what 
you do as commissioner, how would you continue your advocacy for healthcare for everybody as the healthcare commissioner? Thank you, thank you. You know, it's this is really has been a lifelong uh, fight for me. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I grew up without any sort of care, uh, and for us, going to the hospital was driving two and a half hours to Tijuana to get care because one, we didn't have insurance, two, we couldn't afford it, and three, my parents didn't speak the language. So, and these are all barriers that continue to exist today for uh, many Californians. And, you know, I thought, to talk about ignorance is bliss, I thought everybody did that. I'm like, what do you mean? You're, not, you're going on vacation? No, my vacation was, I'm going to go get a root canal right. in Tijuana, <laughs> right? Like, we're going on a family vacation. Uh, or we're going to go buy my mom's like, high blood pressure medication mm. uh, down south, right? And so we always mixed our, our, our vacations with uh-huh. healthcare. So we never got to <laughs> really convenient. enjoy, you oh, know, no. just hanging out on the beach. No, because you're going to get your physical, you're going to get your, you know, teeth cleaned or whatever. Yeah. So, um, so for me, this is something that's always been a, a life passion. And this is why I was so proud last two years ago to get our Health for All Kids bill done, mm-hmm. which ensures that every child in California has access to comprehensive and full-scope Medi-Cal. And to tell you that um, now 200, over 200,000 children in California have signed up to the, for the program. And these are kids that had no other type of care. They ended up in our emergency room, which only cost three times the amount for the state. Why not provide somebody with full school Medi-Cal so that they can have a doctor, have preventative care, children can actually go to school healthy and not having to worry about what's wrong with them. And, you know, again, looking at a child's experience holistically and making sure that not only they have they go to good schools, they have good health care, they have, you know, a good healthy life, where they live with clean air, clean water. Um, And all that is connected, right? So then we moved to ensuring, my next bill was to include our immigrant community into the Affordable Care Act. Mm. Under Obama, they discriminated against undocumented immigrants from being part of the ACA, which makes completely no sense. No sense at all. You want more people engaged (laughs) in the program. And check this out, 30% of our undocumented community can actually pay into the Affordable Care Act. And... You're leaving these people out. You have an aging population, Mm -hmm. and then you have a population of young people who are not having children. So it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And this is not just this phenomenon is not just happening here in California. It's happening across. It's happening all over the world. All over the world. And the uh, the interesting thing is how different countries are are trying to attack this issue. Canada wants immigrants to come to Canada immediately. They know they're younger, they know they're healthier, and they're going to pay into a system because right now their baby boomer generation is continuing to live longer and uh, needs much more care. Japan is having the exact same issue, but what they're doing is they're actually giving young families six months off to a year to be able to focus on the family, creating a family and making sure that they go, they leave their careers with a, a pension and paid and with the right to return back so that they don't have the pressure of having to, you know, stay at work, but actually work on, you know, forming families. And so, you know, this is happening everywhere. Um, and to me, the irony of not allowing undocumented folks to pay into the system makes no sense. And we know now, even with this, you know, so-called tax reform that the, the Congress just passed, it's going to elevate rates. This is why now we need to include more people into the system mm-hmm. to and make sure we we democratize those rates, and by allowing more people in in the program, it stabilizes the program. It was in that discussion where we passed my bill, 
with two-thirds of the vote, with bipartisan support in the House and in the Senate, and the gov Governor Brown signed it. I was in Washington, D.C. advocating for it. We were moving it right along until President Trump happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a conversation with the Obama administration and said, Senator Lara, we wanna, we're going to do what you want. Is Do you want to move this forward, uh, or do you want to withhold it? Because in federal policy, any resource that you get, you're giving, particularly when it comes to health care, you have to identify the individual, where they live, who are their names, mm -hmm. address, everything. And it was on that plane ride where I was devastated because I said, no, I'm not going to move the, move the waiver forward and put people at risk of being deported or identified uh, for trying to access care. And I was so pissed off on that plane ride. That's then, then when I decided that the only way we were going to move on healthcare is if we create a single-payer system. Mm -hmm. And I landed the next day. I was in Sacramento. I introduced the bill. And, you know, I'm just the, the new face of single-payer. I really stand on the shoulders of so many people that have come before me. Uh, Senator Sheila Kuehl, now supervisor. Senator Mark Leno in San Francisco. And countless and countless of advocates that have been working 30, 40 years to make sure that we got to this space. And so, you know, I might be the, new, the latest face, but I'm not going to be the last. People know this is the only way to go. And I'm encouraged now that the Assembly is having these good policy hearings about universal health care and what that looks like. So no longer is it just this just the Senate talking. You know, we're a bicameral system. We want to, and, and, and good policy requires both houses talking about it. And so if I was responsible for sparking that conversation, I'm proud of that. But at the end of the day, I want to make sure that we continue to move forward. And I'll tell you, the, the groundswell support that we've gotten from just every Californian out there keeps us motivated and keeps the legislature uh, motivated to continue to figure out how we get this done. And if California gets this done, there's no doubt in my mind that it's going to get done throughout the rest of the country, just like in Canada. In Canada in the 50s, it started one small province, Saskatchewan province started the universal health care. Mm -hmm. And it started because a young child there was denied care because he didn't have insurance, and that young child became the prime minister of Saskatchewan mm -hmm. province. And Sounds like the American dream. Absolutely. <laughs> In Canada. Yeah, yeah, the Canadian dream, you know, <laughs> right? it exists. Um, and so, you know, this is why these, are, these issues are so important. And mm -hmm. keeping people engaged on, on a, what a single-payer system looks like and, uh, or a health for all, Medi-Cal for all. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people don't understand what single-payer means. And a gentleman came up to me and said, I'm single. Does that mean I have to pay more? I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> this is hard. why, you know, we have to, you know, we say Medi-Cal for all, healthcare uh, for all, because people, that, that kind of generates, like, a, an emotion, right? Yes, healthcare is a right, and it should be a right for everybody, especially, again, in the richest country in the world. The Stonewall Democratic Club is a countywide LGBT organization looking for members and volunteers. Are you wondering how you can get involved and make a difference in the resistance? Join the Stonewall Democratic Club today by visiting stonewalldems.org. 
We want you. We had our annual summer barbecue on August 18th at the home of Assemblymember Reginald Jones-Sawyer. The meat was hot and the wieners were smoking. We were so proud to honor Assemblymember Evan Lowe, chair of California's Legislative LGBT Caucus. The barbecue was made possible thanks to the hard work of our special events chair, Samantha Miles, and vice chair, Michelle Hong. We also caught up with Stonewall President Lester Aponte on the work ahead. How do you feel about the barbecue today, Lester? Uh, we feel very positive. We had a lot of people come uh, and participate, which is always good to have. Uh, so we had a good time with all our friends. Uh, we raised a very good amount of money. That's going to really help us with our political activities this year. Uh, so, I mean, I couldn't ask for more. What are you looking forward to um, as we get to the midterms? Well, we really want to be as engaged as we can in terms of all the uh, uh, congressional races. Uh, we're taking a trip to Nevada to help with the uh, senatorial race there. We're going to Arizona as well. Uh, those are really important because uh, California has about half a dozen seats that are going to be very crucial to take back to Congress. but. There are also senatorial races in our neighboring states, and they need all the help they can get. So I want to get us as involved as we can in turning the country blue. Fantastic. Me too. And I've heard this has been the most, you know, profitable and attended, you know, barbecue in Stonewall history. How does that make you feel? That makes me feel good. We worked hard in making sure that we, uh, you know, got the word out and we had, a, you know, we had as many people here as we can because, you know, it's important that we share time together and we had some fun. Uh, it's, just, it's just a very important election. It's a lot of hard work. So it's good to, you know, take some time to eat together and drink together and celebrate the hard work that we're doing. Fantastic. Well, we appreciate your leadership and we're looking forward to uh, the fight all the way to November to turn Washington blue. All right. Thank you so much. A few months ago, our writer Lauren Buisson caught the ear of Councilwoman Monica Rodriguez with a proposal urging LA City Council to support giving Bayard Rustin a commemorative postage stamp. Here's how it went down. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, colleagues today, and I, I asked Tamika to join me because I thought her remarks were particularly relevant and poignant to what we're gonna be discussing today. Uh, and I also wanna acknowledge uh, my friends from Stonewall that have joined us here today in honor of, uh, of this uh, this resolution. Uh, Sean, Lauren, and Marcus, thank you for being here today with me. Um, but colleagues, this item is a resolution in support of issuing a commemorative postage stamp to recognize Bayard Rustin. Rustin was a civil rights leader who led the journey of reconciliation, an early version of the freedom rights to challenge racial segregation on, uh, on interstate buses. And he worked closely with Dr. Martin Luther King as the chief organizer of the 1963 March on Washington. In 2013, President Obama posthumously awarded Rustin the Presidential Medal of Freedom and remarked how Rustin had been denied his rightful place as a civil rights icon because he was openly gay. It is fitting that we hear this item today in council uh, at the beginning of LGBTQ Heritage Month and a timely reminder that our work for full inclusion is far from over. 
LGBTQ Heritage Month is a way for us to recognize the successes and ongoing struggles of the LGBTQ members of our community and that they uh, continue to face. And I want to thank Stonewall Democratic Club for being here today and for their advocacy and the National LGBTQ Task Force for their activism and continued efforts to honor Bayard Rustin's legacy. And again, when we talk about the struggles that are being endured by so many allies in the LGBTQ community, I think it's also exemplified by what you said today and was so honest and true that this duality of the struggle and identity and the challenges that are exemplified even by people of color in the LGBT community is real. And I wanna thank, uh, thank you for your advocacy and your, your friendship. And uh, again, you know, Tamika, I think it's, it's just incredibly powerful to have you here today uh, and, and recognition of the legacy of this civil rights leader. And I think uh, you know, there are so many individuals that emulate that. Um, but again, I, I want to thank you, colleagues, uh, for your uh, for those that uh, so many of my colleagues that seconded this motion uh, in commemoration of this important, iconic civil rights leader. And I want to thank uh, my friends who are here today uh, in, in joining me in support of this uh, this important acknowledgement of history. Thank you. Okay, uh, uh, Ms. Rodriguez has requested that on this item. I uh, re reopen public, uh, the public hearing, so I think we want to do that. So let's get uh, uh, Marcus, is it Lauren, Sean, come on up if you would. Just identify yourself and welcome. Okay, thank you so much. I am uh, Marcus Lovingood. And uh, uh, I'm a Stonewall Dems committee chair, and um, I host a uh, podcast called Stonewall Spotlight that helped bring this uh, to light. Uh, thank you, Councilwoman Rodriguez, for um, the invitation and opportunity to address you all this morning. Uh, optics really matter. Uh, in 2008, a mixed African-American man who looked kind of a lot like me uh, became president of the United States. Uh, it was that moment that I realized that my preconceived societal limitations uh, that were placed on my dreams had been lifted and I was finally free to reach the stars. Optics really matter. Without freedom riders like Bayard Rustin, leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would never have been able to pave the path so that somewhere down the line, some brown gay man like me could stand before you here today and possibly be present one day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Next speaker, please identify yourself. Uh, Sean Kologi, I'm Communications Vice President of Stonewall and uh, Editor-in-Chief of the podcast uh, where we brought attention to this issue. I think um, in these challenging times, one area where we found hope is through protest, peaceful protest. People have marched on Washington for greater female representation, for safety in our schools, for gun control. Um, in a time when uh, there are all too many bullets and gunshots, what speaks louder than those gunshots is the voices of activists of the Black Lives Matter movement, of trans women who are organizing and demanding justice in the face of brutality. This is Bayard Rustin's legacy. Um, through his civil rights activism, he showed that nonviolent protest can get results. 
And he did this uh, through his march on Washington and through numerous times when he was civilly disobedient and when he even got arrested. So thank you for helping us recognize Bayard Rustin's legacy. It's his time. Thank you. Hi, and identify yourself. Good morning, everybody. My name is Lauren Buisson. I'm from Stonewall Democrats. I want to thank Council Member Rodriguez for bringing this forward. Getting Bayard Rustin his stamp is really, really important to me. I think he is underappreciated because he didn't seek the spotlight so much when he was with us. But as President Obama said, in giving uh, Rustin the posthumous Medal of Freedom, he has been one of the greatest architects for civil justice in our time. Without Bayard Rustin, there is no march on Washington. Bayard Rustin, on his first trip to Los Angeles, was on his way here to guard the homes of interned Japanese Americans. He didn't make it because he was arrested uh, for not giving up his seat years before Rosa Parks. He deserves a stamp. Let's get him his stamp. Let's give Bayard Rustin his due and celebrate the intersectionality that was a part of his life and a huge part of his legacy. I thank you for your attention to this matter. No, thank you all and, and to the three of you well said. Okay, so let's vote on the remaining. Let's open the roll. Close the roll, tabulate the vote. 12 eyes. I'm here in Santa Clarita today with candidate for Congress, Katie Hill, who represents California's 25th district. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's really great to sit down with you today. In preparing for this interview, I watched some of your YouTube videos and I was very impressed. Oh, thank you. Uh, I highly suggest to our listeners that they check you out there. And as a woman, I was drawn to your perspective. And that's important because right now there's only 83 women serving in the House of Representatives. And that's less than 20% of the total. As you know, Kristen Semina, being the only openly LGBTQ woman in the House, is running for Senate. And I'm sure we can both agree that there needs to be more representation across the board, right? Absolutely. And during this campaign, you've shared several personal stories and connected those experiences to policy issues. How do you believe that your perspectives and life experiences as a millennial woman would affect your approach to issues in Congress? Sure. Well, I think that, first of all, one of the things that was important to me in terms of running this campaign was that I wanted to be able to share my stories because I think that's something that's missing fundamentally from politics. Uh, I think anyone can talk about policies, but until you can truly connect those to people's life experiences and to the things they go through on a day-to-day -day basis, um, we're not really going to be able to truly... Uh, help people to understand why policy affects their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, and also, I think we anyone in a leadership position has to do whatever they can to destigmatize issues so that we can truly move forward. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, you know, I've talked about my experience with sexual assault. I've talked about, you know, my experience with an unplanned pregnancy, these things that were stigmatized, and I, I actually was advised in against talking about them as openly as I did. Yeah, those um, were some of the videos that I watched, and I was just like, wow, that, that really hits... Yeah, you know. thank you. But I wanted to make I wanted to make it so that other women could feel like they can tell tell their stories too. Because right. I think that this is this is a time when more people are standing up, more women especially are standing up and saying that we demand equal representation. And uh, you know, as part of that, it's it, it is these unique experiences that we bring to the table that are gonna 
affect the way that we legislate, affect the way that we lead, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately affect the way that we impact our country. So for me, I think that's that's fundamentally a part of who I am, and I think that's what we need to bring, that's what we can bring to the table and what we yeah, should. Yeah, it's so important right now. Yeah, it's yeah. so needed. It's yeah. time, Yeah, right? it is time. <laughs> it is absolutely time. Uh, so in researching, uh, I found out that you are an executive of PATH, and you've worked to address the homelessness crisis. Um, what will you do in Congress to increase the focus on affordable housing at the federal level and to secure additional funding to address homelessness and affordable housing in Southern California? Sure. So in Los Angeles, before I started running for Congress, uh, we I was working on helping to develop and pass these significant ballot measures, Prop HHH and Measure H. Mm-hmm. Prop HHH passed in November of 2016, and then Measure H we passed in March of 2017. <clears throat> so those were, you know, those were uh, historical Im, uh, investments in affordable housing and homeless services that we've never seen before yeah. and pretty much are, are unprecedented across the country. But one of the reasons that I'm running for Congress is that we quickly figured out that if no matter what we do at the local level, if the right resources and investments weren't protected and in place at the federal level, all of that work could be undermined. And, and instead of being able to increase our investment, suddenly it was just being, you know, backfilling for what we were losing at the federal level. So uh, when we are looking at housing and homelessness, you have to look at it as, as the effect of so many different problems we've got in society. For example, uh, the number one impact on homelessness, the number one correlating factor is rental costs. And, and so high rents and low vacancy rates are the most closely uh, correlated issues to the increase in homelessness in any community. Sure. So when you're looking at rent and why rents go up, that means that there's a higher, there's fewer people are able to buy homes. So mm-hmm. in, in Los Angeles, you know, the average price of a home is getting close to a million dollars. That's crazy. And that means most people in our generation are not able to buy homes and that means they're renting. Right. So that rise, that raises the average rents and that pushes more and more people to the bottom that are sharing homes. And, and if they lose a job, exactly. they're not secured. Exactly. So we need to make home ownership more affordable. So that means, um, you know, bringing back tax credits that make first time home, uh, home purchasing more viable for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to look at what is it going to take, you know, in, in places like California to make massive investments in just increasing the housing stock overall. But while we're doing that, recognizing that this is a community that is always going to have people coming from other areas because of the jobs that are here, uh, you know, the weather, everything mm-hmm. like that. So we have to, um, I believe that we need to put a minimum uh, of of affordable housing units that are truly dedicated to people who are low income and not even just low income, but average income. I mean, teachers and nurses that are now being priced out of the housing market in so many communities. Uh, I think we need to figure out ways of municipalities uh, ensuring that that kind of housing is being built as well, not just market rate housing. Um, And then, you know, on top of that, we have to, uh, the, where the federal resources really come into play on affordable housing and homelessness is there's, you know, there are tax credits and, um, and federal investments for capital for actually building the affordable housing units we're talking about. But also there are, you know, they used, they used to be called Section 8 vouchers. Now they're called Housing Choice Vouchers. Mm-hmm. But those, those are subsidies that make it so that the rent is what people can afford. And that is so, so critical in places like Los Angeles and uh, and, and really, you know, all over California that we, you know, that's something that is 
uh, people are dependent on. We have to protect those resources. They're, you know, they go to the most vulnerable people in our communities. Yeah, it's critical. Mm-hmm. They go to, you know, f- single moms with families. Mm-hmm. They go to people who are seriously mentally ill, people who have, um, are veterans and veterans who can't work anymore because of you know, the, their service to our country. Uh, so section, you know, the, those housing choice vouchers are things that we absolutely have to have and they're critical for financing affordable housing and permanent supportive housing deals as well. So, well, I'm so glad that you back that up and are, you know, support that. That's, Thank you. that's a good thing for Thank sure. You. Um, and another thing that you support is uh, universal health care. Yep. And I uh, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, how specifically would you like to achieve this? Moreover, how would you unite Democrats on this issue and find a bipartisan support that's needed to get it done? Yeah. Well, this is a, an important issue for me for a number of reasons, and uh, including the fact that my husband had a collapsed lung uh, during a short period when he didn't have insurance. Wow. Uh, right before we got married. I can't imagine. Yeah, and we ended up $200,000 in debt. Wow. Had to move, right after we got married, had to move back in with his parents. It was... That is um, crazy. Yeah, it was It was awful. It was right after the ACA had passed, but it hadn't taken effect yet. So, uh, you know, we were, we were one of the many stories across the country that, uh, you know, really felt the devastating effects of how our health healthcare system fails people. Mm-hmm. Um, but also... You know, working in homeless services, seeing how many people fell through the, the cracks, especially before the ACA took effect. Um, and during, you know, the, the last several years uh, following the ACA, during the implementation, I helped with the Medicaid expansion, ensuring that people who were formerly not eligible for Medicaid, which is really single single adults, uh, many of whom were experiencing homelessness, right. were able to get primary health care, you know, able, able to get health care overall without just going to the emergency room. And mm-hmm. um, so I think... One of the things that you know was really effective, and as we were as we were working on you know solutions to homelessness, was showing that this is a cost saving measure overall. This is something that you know when we're not when people aren't going to the emergency room because they you know they don't have any other option, and when they are getting treatment preventatively as opposed to you know when they're in crisis. Uh, all of those things make it uh, less of a burden overall. Absolutely, and I think that that's a that's something that goes across party lines. That you want to say, like this is effective. This is more effective for us as a society. Also, you know, when I'm talking, you know, especially in a place like this that is pretty much evenly split between Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, mm-hmm. um, saying, look, at, at the end of the day, if someone we you know if someone's hurt in the middle of the street. We're going to go and help them, and the, there's no there's no question about that. You're not right. going to you know ask them if they're a productive member of society. You're not going to go see if they're a legal immigrant or not. You, yeah, n- who's your healthcare of, provider? Yeah, none of that <laughs> is in question. We're going to go and help them, and that's I think that's the perspective that we need to be looking at it from a society. So, for me, those are the kind of value systems, and those are the those are the ways that we need to pull back from and, or pull back from kind of the arguing about how we get there and just say, look, this is what we need to do. And now let's figure out what's the most effective path. Um, for me, ultimately, we need to get to Medicare for all. But what what, it was, what does it look like for us to get there is, is what's in question. And I think we have to have immediate solutions right now that are going to f- affect the system that is still not working for so many people that mm-hmm. can't, you know, here, I hear all the time that uh, premiums under, for me, for, you know, I'm talking as if I were a member of the community, are hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month. Uh, a, my deductible is $7,000 or I've heard $11,000. And uh, I've just had to decide that, like, instead of instead of paying that, I'm just going to put some money away and hope for the best because I can't afford that. Yeah. And, uh, and they don't qualify for the subsidies because they make just too much. And 
So those that kind of a system right now, we can't we can't just say we're gonna we're gonna just leave it as is until we get to until we in, until we have the votes necessary to go completely all in on Medicare for all because I just don't think that that's a good enough answer for people. So I think that we have to take steps now to fix the ACA. Uh, we need to work and truly work in good faith with whoever our colleagues are, whether they're, you know, Republicans or not, to get something signed and passed as as quickly as humanly possible. And that's something that I'd be committed to. But at the same time, I think we have the opportunity to lay the groundwork right now for what ultimately is going to be Medicare for All. We need massive investments in uh, in, in training so that we have a nursing workforce and a, and a healthcare workforce that can I keep up with totally this. I totally agree with that. Um, when we, a lot of people don't know this, but when we first developed Medicare and Medicaid in the 60s, we, right before that, before that was passed, there were massive investments in the nursing. It was called the Nursing Workforce Act, and it mm-hmm. literally developed nursing schools all across the country. Um, and it provided, it provided the ability for... This ended up becoming where how my mom, or sorry, how both of my grandmothers on both sides, my dad's and my mom's, um, became nurses was because of those investments and because of the newly covered people that were that were going to be using the healthcare system more through Medicaid and Medi- and Medicare. But then also on top of that, we've got massive doctor shortages. Where uh, you know we've got a hundred thousand doctor shortage now that is going up year after year. And uh, in primary care doctors, especially, that's a that's a huge issue for us, especially as we're trying to say more and more people are going to be getting this kind of coverage and actually using it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are those are issues that infrastructure that we need to be looking at. We need to be looking at how we're reducing costs overall right now. How are we making it so that the insurance system is being held accountable for uh, for how the costs in healthcare continue to rise and that those get passed onto the consumer? Then there's no accountability. To, they need to, to be held accountable mm-hmm. for sure. At yeah. This time so. Well, thank you for that, Absolutely. and uh, here's hoping. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, we can. Uh, and continuing to expand on helping society, um, you know, from Sandy Hook to Pulse to Parkland, the list goes on. Gun violence has become a massive problem that's led to the untimely deaths of thousands of young Americans. And it's no secret that the NRA and Republicans have sought to undermine any truly meaningful gun reform. Right. So. What specific measures do you support to reduce incidents of gun violence? Yeah. Well, this is an issue that I think we're, we're finally hitting a tipping point where, uh, the, where it's become publicly clear that the vast majority of Americans want something done on this. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I really am hopeful that this, this is something, with the movement that we're seeing with March for Our Lives and with what the students are organizing around uh, is something that politicians across the aisle can't ignore any longer. Um, but you know, I'm somebody who, who grew up with guns. My dad's a police officer. My father-in-law's a police officer Mm -hmm. and, and it's just part of kind of what we both grew up with. We own guns and 40% of the people living in this district own guns. But I think that the, we have to show the narrative that gun owners are so in, you know, responsible gun owners believe in gun safety measures more than anybody else and want to see the, to really ensure that guns do not enter the hands of people who shouldn't have them. So ensuring that we have truly universal background checks with no exceptions, mm-hmm. closing all of those loopholes, making sure that we aren't selling you know, assault rifles to civilians. I mean, as since my dad was a police officer, uh, I was awake every single night as a kid wondering if he was going to make it home. That was a, that was one of my biggest fears. And I was never afraid that he was going to be stabbed. I was afraid that he was going to be shot. Of course. And, uh, the, you know, the most dangerous weapons are the ones that penetrate your 
your, your vest and yeah. those are assault rifles. Those just don't need to be in the hands of civilians ever. Mm. Bump stocks, uh, you know, uh, expanded mags, none of those kinds of things are, are things that we should be selling. And so there's, there's common sense steps that we can take. Waiting periods, ex- expanding the waiting periods, uh, that saves lives not only for, you know, incidents like mass shootings, but also even more so on suicide prevention. That's something that's affected my family personally. My, you know, I've lost friends to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then raising the minimum age to 21. That's, that should be so common sense. If you can't buy a beer, how on earth <laughs> can you buy a deadly weapon? So many people are in support of that. Yeah. And I'm glad you are too. It's yeah. a no brainer. Um, you can close those loopholes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, right now we've been hearing a lot lately about the upcoming 2020 census and that the Trump administration is playing games yet again. Mm-hmm. And the U S census bureau has announced that it will not collect critical demographic data about the number of people who identify as LGBTQ, uh, while at the same time announcing that it will ask intimidating questions about immigration status. Mm-hmm. What can Congress do to improve oversight of the census to prevent the politicization of the Trump administration? Yeah. Well, I don't think any administration should have the ability to do that, to make that kind of decision unilaterally. I think right. we need to introduce legislation that is going to set basic standards for what we, how, how we're operating the census uh, as a country that can be consistent and say that you know, ultimately maybe there should be some kind of an oversight that works in conjunction, oversight committee that works in conjunction with the administration to Mm -hmm. uh, ensure that this kind of thing is done fairly, that there's a, um, so, you know, in terms of specific legislation, I think that's something that we, that needs to be discussed and, and I, you know, I don't have a specific answer to, but I'm sure it's in talks. But in the meantime, we, we have a real problem here because 2022, Redistricting is, you know, between 2020 and 2022, we're going to have redistricting across the country that is going to affect us for, a decade, yeah, and it's uh, it's you know that that's going to shape politics across our country. And if we don't have people being counted appropriately, the the you know I'm as somebody who identifies as LGBTQ, for me that's important because it, it you know it's going to show where where people are concentrated. It's going to give us so much data on how we need to invest our resources towards you know this population. Um, everything like that also to show look this is a growing population this is one that as people are becoming more and more comfortable with coming out I I think we're going to see the numbers rising and I think that's something that's really important for us to have the dialogue around but also I think so that that may not be counted and if that's the case that's just you know to me that's just tragic but also probably even more significantly as it comes as it relates to at least redistricting and how how it's going to affect politics is this question around citizenship because mm-hmm. resources w- within the states or within uh, across the country are based on the number of people who are living in that state for example California whether you're here legally or not your your you know someone's presence in this community is impacting roads it's impacting you know all of these different uh, aspects of our communities that we need resources for and and you can't just limit people whether they're citizens or not and actual citizens who are you know related to immigrant families are going to not complete the census because of this so we, it could lead to undercounting people by millions and then not get uh, the representation that's needed for those communities yeah if you don't have that right information you're mm-hmm. not able to make informed policy mm-hmm. decisions so we need to really stand up publicly and say that this is unacceptable we need to be a loud voice around it um and then i think that one of the most important things that we should be talking about is how no matter how the questions land we need to be organizing massively on helping to make sure that the census gets completed appropriately, that we f- that we can help people feel safe as they're completing it mm-hmm. if this question is on there, um, and then 
uh, once it is completed, then really making sure that we're organizing around redistricting because it's going to be a massive, massive issue for us. Mm-hmm. Yep, I totally agree. Well, uh, in wrapping this interview up, uh, if elected to Congress, what committees would you like to serve on and what would be the first bill you'd introduce? Yeah, uh, so I think that there's... There are a number that I want to serve on. <laughs> uh, ultimately, my goal would be ways and means. I think I have a lot to offer on healthcare, sure. and um, you know that's where you can work on on housing policy. The finance committee is actually one where you can work on housing issues. That's one that I would love to serve on. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't get a whole lot of choice as a freshman, and <laughs> you uh, you you get you work where you are able to find a spot. But right. um, but ultimately, those are the ones that I I would like to get to. Also, veterans affairs is another one where I. Um, I feel like I have a lot I can add, especially with my work with PATH. Uh, every generation of my family served in the military going back to the Revolutionary War. Our district has the highest number of veterans living in our district out of anywhere in the region, mm-hmm. um, except for when you get down into San Diego area. So it's it's something that's important to this community, and it's something that have, having worked as a, as a VA contractor and worked on you know mental health issues, substance abuse issues, housing issues, homelessness, uh, directly with the VA, I think that that's something that is of... Um, we need that perspective, right? Especially as we're seeing more and more incidences of that as, uh, you know, with the OEF, OIF population of veterans. Um, But in terms of legislation, the first piece of legislation that I would introduce, uh, I think, you know, I really want to, I feel like the most pressing priority that I can truly help take a lead on is going to be around uh, mental health, substance abuse, and affordable housing and homelessness issues. So depending on what opportunities I get, those those are the issues that I think that I have the most expertise on and that are, are incredibly time-sensitive, that we need somebody who has the knowledge and ability to help shape that kind of legislation and get the buy-in that it needs both on the Democratic side but also on the Republican side. Um, and I would, that's, that's an area where I would really focus on. Excellent. Well, as our Stonewall endorsed candidate, uh, we do hope to see you succeed. Thank you. So thank you for sitting down with us today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Katie Hill. I'm a congressional candidate for California's 25th district and I am Stonewall. just bumped into council member Nuri Martinez for the 6th council district. Did I get that right? And she is responsible for this glorious, so much fun family event called Valley Pride. Council members, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you very much for having me and welcome to Valley Pride. This is my first time being here. How long have you been involved in this and what gave you the idea to start it? That's a great question. So we started four and a half years ago when I first got elected. Uh, my, my history with the LGBT community goes way back to when I was in high school. Uh, one of my first jobs was passing out condoms. And we and it was passing out condoms to my peers at San Fernando High School, but we were also talking about HIV and AIDS. Uh, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. So it was right at the, at the entire forefront of the AIDS epidemic. And a lot of my friends were becoming infected, especially women of color and uh, and our men in our community, and we weren't talking about it. And so one of my very first jobs was to go out and talk about how you not get infected with HIV. And so we used to pass out condoms. But I remember the resistance back in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, we are what used to be a very conservative part of Los Angeles and coming from a Mexican-American, very Catholic background, a lot of my friends had a lot of trouble be- getting accepted from their mom and dad. But 
I guess I was very lucky that I, my parents were incredibly progressive for their generation. So it was my house that welcomed everybody. It was my parents who talked to other parents about accepting their children no matter what they were. And that it was not going to be the end of the world. But I remember those conversations. So when I became elected, I told my staff, I want to do something to reach back to those days and bring family acceptance back to the San Fernando Valley. I want to talk about these issues because even though we've come a long way with the spread of HIV, these conversations of, of kids coming out to their parents, is still difficult. It's still difficult for, for, for uh, families of color to have. So where do they go? Where do they turn to? Do they go to their church? Do they go to their pastor? What what are those conversations like? Or do they do they, do they seek help through um, a therapist? Or what is, kind of resources do we have in the Valley? So we pulled a coalition together and we came up with an event. Mainly because we're sort of tired of going to the other side of the, of the, of the hill to go and get and talk about pride and talk about, you know, these issues on the other side of the hill. And I said, you know, there's almost two million people in the San Fernando Valley. We should have our own pride event. So we had a documentary film that we featured four years ago and people came. Then the following year, we featured another film in my office and people came and I said, you know what? That's kind of boring. Like, I, I like to sit around and talk about uh, these documentaries and how far we've come uh, in the LGBT movement. But why don't we have an actual celebration of being out and proud in the Valley? So we came up with this festival and we called it Valley Pride. Well, it's obvious to me that people are having a great time. All the food trucks, all the vendors, and this incredible live band. Why did you decide to make this a dry event? I wanted to this to be centered around family. I wanted it to be centered around kids being able to come here with their parents, uh, families being able to invite their mom and dad and their grandparents. And I wanted to center around family. This is why this year's theme is family acceptance. And we have the, our family uh, photo booths, uh, and we have a number of pictures portraying families from the San Fernando Valley with moms um, and moms and dads and dads, or, or, and, and everyone comes here and celebrates what it means to be a family, no matter who you are. We are about accepting one another, and I think that's the message that we want our families to take uh, away from this. Is this primarily why it's a dry event? I don't know. I get lobbied for me to have, you know, a little bit of beer or wine at the event, but we're not there yet. We're just here to basically have a good time with our kids, and we want our parents to come and say and celebrate with us and say, you know what, there's other people that look just like us that are going through the same exact thing. Let's talk about it, and let's not shy away from it. Let's just be proud about who we are, and that's what this event's about. Well, this is our first time here reporting on this, and I got to tell you, I'm having a fabulous time, and I cannot wait to come back next year. Thank you so much, Thank Council you. Member. Thank you for tuning in to our season in review episode of Stonewall Spotlight. I'm Mackenzie Hussman, your host. And I'm Marcus Levengood, your co-host. We'll see you next time on Stonewall Spotlight. I'd also like to thank the Stonewall Democratic Club for bringing us together and making this possible. Thank you to everyone on our communications team. Sean Kologi, our editor-in-chief. Marcus Levengood, our producer and co-host. Lauren Buisson, our researcher and writer. Alex Paris, our script supervisor. Marcus Lovingood edited this episode. I'm Mackenzie Hussman, your host and co-producer. Thank you for listening to Stonewall Spotlight.